Hi, I'm Billy Shore. Welcome back to Add Passion and Stir. This is a conversation that we love to have about problems that seem intractable in the world, but amazing people who are actually solving them. And my sister, Debbie Shore, who is with me today, um, and I have a guest who fits that description, uh, Dan Pallotta. Uh, who's coming to us from Massachusetts today. And, uh, you know, usually I know how to introduce a guest, but Dan, there's so many aspects of your uh, character and your history from in you know, basically inventing what so many of us have come to rely on as um, a, a new way of raising funds for important causes, in your case, starting with the breast cancer three-day walks and the AIDS rides, but also the author of a book that uh, almost everybody in the nonprofit sector knows now called Uncharitable. Uh, also the author of a very important TED Talk that goes back to 2013, um, Uncharitable, about to become a movie. We should talk about that. And uh, also a kind of a budding new career um, as an acoustic songwriter and, and singer. Um, and we want to talk about that as well. So it leaves me at a little bit of a loss is the best way to introduce you, Dan, but, um, but your, your creativity knows no bounds and you've just been a, you know, a friend and a mentor and an inspiration to so many of us in this sector that it's, uh, it's really great to have you back on the podcast. Oh, it's great to be here, Billy. Thanks for having me. You, I think you started out by saying you have people on here who, uh, uh, work on, uh, problems that seem intractable i've decided they actually are which is why i've gone into music so uh, <laughs> you know like, <laughs> we can bypass that part of the conversation well i knew i knew that your creativity was you know was crying out for another outlet which is i assumed what was partly behind the music but let's let, let, let's start at the let's start at the beginning for um those who did not hear you on an earlier episode and for those who don't know your work, say a little bit about like what just led you on this lifelong path to make social change more impactful. Uh, let's see. You want the two hour version or the two minute version? I'd like the two month version. I want to hear it all. <laughs> uh, it started in college. You know, I, I was, I was in college. I started college in 1979. Jimmy Carter was president. He established a commission on world hunger I was a massive John Denver fan. John Denver was on Jimmy Carter's Commission on World Hunger. I wrote a letter to John Denver to come to Harvard to speak about his work, and he did. And I got to meet him and ride around in his limousine, and I was hooked on social change. Um, and uh, and Werner Erhard, who created Est, came out with this thing called the Hunger Project that set a goal of ending hunger on the planet by the year 2000, saying it was an idea whose time has come had come. And, you know, imagine you remember 1979, it was CARE and UNICEF and Oxfam just talking about aid. No, nobody had ventured into the domain of saying we could eradicate hunger. Um, that was a new possibility and excited me. And so it made me want to do really, really big things. And I organized a bike ride at Harvard and 39 of us rode our bikes across America to raise money to fight world hunger. And um, it was a big deal. It was an important emotional journey. Um, it was an important marker in the beginning of my professional career. And then I moved to LA. It was the beginning of the AIDS epidemic. And all you could do was go on the AIDS walk for like five kilometers on a Saturday morning. And you were losing your friends and your, you were burying your 26-year-old best pals. And you needed something bigger to do. And so, you know, I never forgot the power of that cross-country bike ride, the, the power of a long journey as a metaphor for so many other things. 
And it led me to create these long journeys instead of 5K walks, like let's do seven-day bike rides across Alaska and across Montana. Let's do three-day walks for breast cancer where everybody will sleep in tents and we'll walk 20 miles a day. Like let's do pilgrimages. Um, and so that's what we created. And we, we raised, I don't know, about $600 million in nine years and created these beautiful spiritual experiences for people company went out of business um, very suddenly um, as a result of being dogged for years by questions about overhead and how much do you pay your people. I mean, we were raising historic amounts of money, but the press wanted to focus formulaically on costs. Uh, and that led me to think about these things and write books like Uncharitable and the Everyday Philanthropist. And that led me to the TED talk that I did, which has led to this new movie that we're doing to try and change the way the culture thinks about giving rather than rewarding nonprofits for how little they spend. Let's reward them for the enormity of their dreams and the progress they're making toward those dreams the way we do, you know, Tesla and Apple. Dan, Dan you know, there's so much we want to get into about the themes of the book. But before we do, I'm just you said something at the very beginning that I would just love a, a minute um, on, which is. I wonder why, like you were so inspired, you know, back in the seventies by John Denver and, um, you know, Jimmy Carter, like was it something that your parents, you know, did your parents have that kind of influence on you? I'm wondering why some people get inspired and some people don't and look at what you've done because of that inspiration. So how do you, how do you think about that, that early inspiration where it came from? I think part of it was the time that we grew up in, right? So then if you grew up, I was born on the first day of John Kennedy's presidency. So I was born in 1961, January 21st. And if you think about the 60s and you're five years old, seven years old, eight years old, you know, formative period, you're beginning to um, create your worldview. What's happening? Well, you've got young leaders like John Kennedy talking about the Hudson, the people in the Hudson villages of half the globe. You've got a young 35-year-old Robert Kennedy saying that the future is not a gift, it is an achievement. You've got a 38-year-old Martin Luther King talking about love and justice in the same sentence. So um, it's a sea change from the, you know, the the old men, you know, uh, speaking about war and things of that sort. So that's one piece. Then you've got Vietnam happening, right? And Walter Cronkite, your parents are glued to the television set every night and you're hearing about body counts and talk about intractable. And as a kid, it's just dull and frustrating and boring to see that adults can't do anything about this horrible stuff. And then at the same time, you have Apollo happening. So if you're a seven or eight year old kid, you may be, you know, watching every Apollo 8, Apollo 9, Apollo 10, then Apollo 11, the docking sequences, the liftoff, the um, lunar orbit rendezvous, the landing on the moon. And so you want to do something big about these intractical problems that you're, you're hearing about and you're inspired by these young leaders who have now been murdered, right? So it, it feels like some responsibility falls on your shoulder. Add to that obsessive compulsive DNA. My, my mother said she used to take me to the grocery store when I was a kid and, and I'd be in the aisles reorganizing all the cans <laughs> because I didn't like the way they were all messed up. So I think that's the only explanation. You put those two, an OCD uh, organizing mind and, and that cauldron of influences that I grew up in. You yeah, know? the little, little DNA 
mixed into there. I think yeah. So yeah. And Dan, in terms of you know what you've learned from all this, I feel like your your kind of synthesis of it has been getting sharper and crisper and more clear over the years and in some ways is embodied in this very handy, I think of it as a handbook, The Everyday Philanthropist, A Better Way to Make a, a Better World. Uh, and it, it feels like I know some of the themes that, that Debbie and I want to get into today, I feel are, like are just encapsulated in there. And, I've, and I, I know that when you talk about them, I've seen the way audiences react. I think people find it so empowering and in some ways so liberating from conventional orthodoxy to be given permission to think a new way. And so, you know, one of the things you say at the very beginning of this book in the introduction, I think the first sentence is, what if everything we've been taught about charitable giving is wrong? And then on the next page, you have what you call a sober opening thought. Ever wonder why charities aren't changing the world the way we had hoped? It's because that's not what we asked them to do. We asked them to keep their overhead and salaries low. So guess what they did? So, you know, I know this, to me, that encapsulates so much of, you know, of what you've been trying to get across. And as I say, I know that people respond to it as a, as a very empowering notion that they don't have to be shackled to these old ways of doing things. Um, talk about the progress that's been made along the lines that you've advocated, where the resistance has been and continues to be. And where you think things are going to end up. Yeah, great. Yeah, a lot of people say, yeah, you did your TED Talk 10 years ago. You know, what's what's changed? Right away, about six weeks after I did the TED Talk, three of the big evaluators, the Better Business Bureau, Wise Giving Alliance, uh, GuideStar, and uh, Charity Navigator issued a joint press release that they entitled The Overhead Myth, in which they wrote a paragraph and they said to the to the donors of America, we write to correct a misconception about what you should be asking about when giving. Uh, don't ask about overhead. Many charities should spend more on overhead. So that was like hell freezing over for Charity Navigator, um, which had popularized the overhead ratio in the previous two decades as a measure of a charity's character, now saying that's not the most important thing. Um, to ask about, but, but when you fed the public something very simple and they've become addicted to it, it's very difficult to unwind that. And you're not going to do that with a press release, um, like the one that was issued though it was progress. And then you had Darren Walker of the Ford foundation coming out and saying the overhead ratio is a charade, uh, verbatim. And frankly, we've been willing participants in it. We have known that the overhead we give to our grantees is not enough to cover the costs of their projects. So they doubled their overhead ratio. And then, um, uh, the Packard Foundation and the MacArthur Foundation and the Open Society, Society Foundation joined hands with Ford in doing the same thing. Um, and then, you know, I just hear a ton of anecdotes. I showed someone the TED Talk or I gave someone this book and they weren't going to give to us at all because they said our overhead was too high and now they just want to fund overhead. So th there's been there's I would say that what it has what it has done is ignited a conversation um, but I would say that that conversation is where gay marriage was 
not in 1991 or in 1983, but about 1945. Like we have a long way to go. One of the things I just want to, you know, underscore for people and tell me if you uh, if you disagree, but it, it, it's hard to overstate how much for so long that was the principal question that donors, whether individual donors or foundations or others asked, everything kind of like, you know, got boiled down to like, well, what's your overhead? And that's how I'm going to decide whether you're an effective organization. It was, uh, it was kind of uh, endemic to the sector. Yeah. Well, you said something brilliant in the, in the movie, uh, Billy, when we filmed you, you said, um, here's how I like to think about it. I'm, I'm paraphrasing. If I tell a donor, look, I can give you 5% overhead but we're not going to be able to solve hunger anywhere. Or I can give you 35% overhead and tell you we've solved child hunger in 35 of 50 states, which is a better investment for you. And that's just not the way we've typically told people to, to think about things. And um, I tell a funny story in some of my talks. I think it's funny anyway. Um, that We walked around the airports for decades dragging the luggage before it dawned on anyone that we could put wheels on the suitcases, right? Like these were not exact, not exactly new technologies, the wheel and the case. You get a company called Samsonite, right? All they got to think about is suitcases. It takes them a hundred years to figure out wheel, case. We could put these things together. And then we get locked into that paradigm. So we go around the airports for 40 years with two wheels on the suitcases. And then somebody says, hey, we could put four wheels on the suitcases. So we're just slow. Like we're intelligent beings, but we are slow and we don't examine things. You know, we just take our surroundings for granted because we're so busy. So, you know, I don't have any particular, particular genius. It's just, I, I had time to think about these things after the company went out of business. And, and then once you see that our charitable system is broken, you start looking around and you go, well, wait a second education's broken, the healthcare system's broken, policing, it's all broken. <laughs> you know, it's all systemic trouble. And ch change is uncomfortable for people too, you know? People just, you know, get locked into things and change just is very uncomfortable in addition, right? And in some, to some degree, we're our own, I, I've always believed that, you know, in the nonprofit sector, we're to, in, to some degree our own worst enemy because we buy into the system. We almost, uh, you know, almost for a long time mindlessly you know, bought into and facilitated the notion that yes, it should be about overhead and we're going to you know get our overhead low and we're going to share with you what that is at the expense of really focusing on our impact and communicating our impact. And, you know, all of this stuff we're talking about is not a kind of small marginal issue. We depend on nonprofits now to play such a meaningful role in solving so many social problems that to degree to which they're, you know, handicapped in doing so or constrained in doing so, it, it becomes a, a, a really major societal problem. But I, but I do think that for too long, uh, many in the nonprofit sector have, have either not had the, the foresight or the courage to speak up the way you did, Dan, frankly, and say, no, we're going to, this is going to be about our impact. This is not going to be about our overhead. Yeah, and that's a good thought to stick a pin in, which um, is, you know, we don't advocate for more spending on overhead or salaries uh, just for their own sake, because we want to see people make more money. 
we we want the nonprofit sector to solve huge problems. We want the nonprofit sector to be able to dream gigantic dreams like No Kid Hungry is dreaming, right? And making bold declarations. Now, in order to make good on those dreams and those declarations, you need a different set of permissions. So it's dream first, right? And then give me the permissions I need to make those dreams come true. Not give me some new permissions and then I'll figure out if I want to dream or not. Um, so that's really important in terms of interpreting what I'm um, trying to say. And the thing that I, you know, shout from the rooftops to nonprofits is you do, are not any less entitled to dream ridiculous, ridiculous dreams like Elon Musk and Mark Zuckerberg and Tim Cook are dreaming. I mean, look, Elon Musk is saying, I want to create an interplanetary species. I want to populate Mars. And he's on the path to doing it. Elon Musk says, I want to globalize. I want to electrify the global automobile fleet. And he's doing it. You sit with a group of nonprofit leaders, and I've done it many times on a Saturday afternoon in a workshop and say, in one sentence, tell me your dream. You don't have to do it, but just exercise your dream muscle. You want to do this thing by what date? They can't do it. They cannot utter a sentence like that. It's as if a gag, there's a gag mechanism. So they start talking about their landlord or the history of their board or their story or their drama. They cannot articulate a dream, even when they don't have to pursue it. So it's like an oppression sickness, you know, and I'm familiar with that as a gay man where um, it's just the sector so downtrodden that it can't aspire and, and aspire is what we need it to do. One of the things you write about in The Everyday Philanthropist is um, how organizations, some organizations focus on acute issues and some focus on, you know, chronic problems and issues. And as you know, we've we've traditionally for the last, you know, 30 years focused on. I guess the acute, you know, access to federally funded programs like school breakfast and, uh, you know, after school and summer meals and all the no kid hungry programmatic work. And we're still committed to those. But now our new body of work is going to be focused on building economic opportunity and mobility for families who are living in poverty. So, you know, more of the I guess more of the cat in the category of the chronic. So in, in your experience, are those a separate set of donors or, or can you move donors from the acute to the chronic? And how do you how do you see that? Yeah, I think you can absolutely move them. Um, people have asked me, and there's overlap between chronic and acute issues, as you as you're seeing. The, often the chronic is acute. Um, uh, people will say to me, "How do I get my board members more engaged? How do I get my donors more engaged?" And my answer is, stop boring them to death. You know. Stop putting them to sleep with jargon that, you know, that, that have, Do they invite you back? That they, they laugh hysterically because it's, an, it's a revelation to them. Again, it's this, you, you and the nonprofit, for some reason, you think dreaming is sophomoric. For some reason, you think dreaming is um, not serious. And you think that burying yourself in impenetrable jargon and metrics that nobody can understand, that that's somehow sophisticated. Well, I mean, not to talk about Elon Musk all day long, but there isn't a paragraph there. There's a sentence. I want to electrify the global automobile fleet. That's my dream. I want to, um, I want to colonize Mars, right? You should, if you can't say it in four words like that, we want to end child hunger by the year 2030, right, is what No Kid Hungry says. You're not going to excite donors. 
Um, you've got to you've got to have something that lights them up, that makes them feel like they're alive. That's something that they want to put on their gravestone in, instead of the narcoleptic, um, you know, what mission crap that that uh, you know enough. You know what I mean? Yes. Yeah. Well, Dan, let me let me let me give you a corollary to, to what you're talking about. That was for me really eye opening. And it's a it was about 10 years ago now that, you know, I had asked our team to kind of take some time, come back in a couple of weeks and share uh, the boldest assertion that they could share about the impact that we in the anti-hunger community had made because we'd actually, you know, reduced childhood hunger by about 35% at that point, And it was a historic milestone. Uh, anyhow, people came back, they went around the room and uh, their offerings were so tepid that I looked at people, I said like, well, you know, why do we even come to work every day? If this is all we've accomplished, I said, here's, here's my assertion. I'm going to assert that we've reduced childhood hunger by, you know, 35%. And Everybody went around the room and said, well, we can't say that. And the reasons that they offered were um, it, uh, donations might uh, uh, dry up. Uh, other organizations might uh, be envious of our assertion. We might not be able to prove it down to the decimal point. But nobody disagreed with it. I said, I hear all that, but do you think it's true? Do you think the statement is true? And to a person, they thought it was true, but they didn't think we could say it. And I mean, it's just, it goes to your point of like, why wouldn't you say the most exciting thing that you've accomplished as opposed to, you know, the wonky stuff? It's, it's pathological, you know, I mean, I think really all nonprofits need to be in deep, deep therapy. Uh, imagine, imagine if Apple said, uh, this, this Apple Vision Pro that we've spent the last six years developing, it's really cool, but I don't know, might piss off Samsung and others, so maybe we shouldn't put it on the market, right? right? right. Well, all right, we're, we're, we're really uh, feeding on each other's <laughs> rants now. Uh, so let's talk about, um, you know, one of the next things that's coming down the pike for you is the movie uh, Uncharitable, which I think is it is it still coming out uh, in uh, towards the end of September? It, yeah, we're premiering it at the Directors Guild of America in New York on September 21st, and then uh, one of the Lemleys in LA on September 29th, and then it goes into right now we have it scheduled in 29 theaters in the U.S. and Canada, um, and that number is growing. We hope that's going to approach more like 100 theaters in the U.S. and Canada over the uh, six weeks following that, and then it'll go to subscription streaming and on-demand streaming. Documentary or, or movie? Well, we're calling it a movie because, you know, it's got humor, it's got pathos, it's got... Uh, tragedy and it's got academics. Um, so you're in it. I, I, I'm in it. In yeah, it. I'm in it. Billy's in it. Um, Edward Norton plays a big role in it. Chris Anderson, who's the head of TED, plays a big role in it. Darren Walker, the head of the Ford Foundation. Mark Tursek, who runs the Nature Conservancy. Tom Tierney, who uh, runs Bridgespan. Katie Hood, who was the head of the Michael J. Fox Foundation. Um, and it's a it's a it's a powerful piece of work. You know, it took us six years to make it. It was uh, it's directed by Stephen Gyllenhaal, who is Jake and Maggie's dad. And it was a battle for six years between me and Stephen, me wanting to make sure that it was persuasive, that it was intellectually persuasive and Stephen wanting to make sure that it was emotionally moving. Um, and, you know, there are some. Yeah. So so I think it's a 
we've been doing pre-release screenings. There was one in Toronto last night with 150 um, major philanthropists, and I did a Q&A via Zoom after it. Just thunderous standing ovation after the movie. It really... Man, this is this is so exciting! Oh my gosh! Yeah, and I'm assuming the idea, Dan, was to was to just you know continue uh, what's been your quest to kind of reach a larger and larger audience for these ideas. You know, larger than a, than a book would reach uh, by itself. Yeah, and it's kind of like Edison said. You know, I haven't failed a thousand times. I've found a thousand ways that don't work. So I keep finding like, how do you get this message across to people? How do you? Okay, thick book, academic book, uncharitable. All right, that did a little bit of good, but nobody wants to read a thick academic book. Thinner little book, everyday philanthropist. Yeah, but books stack up on people's nightstand. TED Talk. Yeah, but it's aging now, and eighteen minutes, you know, only internalizes this stuff so much. Movie. Yes, movie. Movie can really change things, you know, inconvenient truth. Um, and I thought the issues, these issues you and I are discussing right now l- lent themselves beautifully to a documentary. So it's a it's an academic piece that discusses the 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 argument why we should give charities the freedom to focus on their dreams. But then it, it meshes in, it blends in the stories of um, five uh, philanthropy entrepreneurs who did amazing things, myself included, and then had them destroyed by an illiterate media who was just focused on cost and not on long-term impact. Does it feature any, I mean, we should all wait to see it, obviously, but I'm so intrigued. Does it feature any community people that the charities benefit at all? Um, you know, you know, like we didn't, we didn't, we didn't interview homeless clients or medical clinic clients we didn't we didn't interview um the you know recipients of services i've actually always found that interesting overhead does anybody go at did anybody ask women dying of breast cancer if they care what the overhead is if a cure is actually found no we never do that right we we never actually talk to the people who have to live with the results we produce or don't produce, you know? So Dan, I want to read one other thing from um, the everyday philanthropist, just a short paragraph, because it goes to exactly kind of the storytelling point that I think you're making. Um, and towards the end here, um, you've got some logos from Disney and McDonald's and L'Oreal and uh, Budweiser and Coca-Cola. And you write, we allow for profits to shout at us with billions of dollars in beautifully produced advertising so we'll buy their products, but we don't want charities to spend money telling society their stories so they can't get us to, quote, buy, end quote, the way for-profits can. This is why we have so much more consumption than compassion. Uh, so this notion of investing in storytelling becomes very real. Sometimes that, you know, probably gets uh, uh, earmarked or allocated as overhead as well, but uh, that's the way the world works. And I always tell people and share strength People ask who our competition is. Our competition is not Feeding America or Project Bread or other hunger organizations. Our, our competition is Disney and Google and Twitter or whatever else is stealing mindshare uh, and wallet share from people. Yeah, imagine a world where marketing is dominated by uplifting messages about causes. Imagine a Super Bowl where 90% of the ads are for generosity and contribution and only 10% are for beer. You know, I mean, now you have a different world. Now you are motivating people in different ways. I was doing a speech in Charlotte where they have huge problems with economic mobility and, uh, so they issued a huge report, you know, government, nonprofits, educational institutions, all the consultants produced this big report. And on the cover, it said, 
how do we create a community of caring? It was sort of a rhetorical question, you know, never to actually be answered, a difficult question. And I don't think it's a difficult question. How do you create a community of caring? Same way we created a community of consumption. We invest in it, billions and billions of dollars every month. And if you think somehow the world is going to transform to kindness without um, some kind of an, a messaging investment on the order of you know $100 billion to get it to do that, then you're living in a fool's paradise because they're just inundated all day long with ads for Rolex and BMW and the latest Marvel movie and the new Levi's, you know, the new the new Air Jordan sneakers and everything else. So, you know, just, we're just hypnotized into consumption. One last question on the book, because I think we want to turn to some of your music as well, Dan. But um, there's a chapter on questions not to ask, like, what does the CEO make and what's your overhead? But on the flip side, what should people who want to donate ask, obviously about the impact of, of the organization, but is there anything else essential that they should be asking before they donate? I think people should ask three questions to try and get at what is an organization's true intention and what kind of ability do they have to make good on that intention. So I think people should ask three questions. What are your goals? What progress are you making toward those goals? And how do you improve? If they answer those three questions, um, successfully, then that's an organization you can give to, you know, what are your goals? No kid hungry. Well, we want to end child hunger by such and such a day. Okay. That inspires me as opposed to if you said, well, we're an anti-hunger organization. Yeah. But what's your goal? Well, we haven't really thought about that much. We're just an anti-hunger organization. Yeah. I'm not going to give to you, you know? Yeah. Yeah, that makes sense. Dan, I think, I think this might relate to your music, but I was going to ask you, you know, you've been carrying this the weight of this fight for for many many years, uh, the TED Talk and before, um, you've been uh, on you know somewhat of a, a roller coaster in terms of some of the attacks that you mentioned um, from your organization that you founded. Um, so I was going to ask, you know, what do you do to keep yourself uh, renewed and resilient? And I'm assuming that the music is. Uh, part of it. I just listened to a terrific uh, song of yours called The Man That Fortune Forgot. Um, and I think I saw a social media post that you've got a new album coming out. Talk about what led to the to the music. Um, yeah, when I left college, I moved to LA to try and get a record deal when I was, you know, 20, 21 years old. Um, because I realized I was gay. I had wanted to run for president and that was not going to happen now that I knew I was gay in 1983. So I moved to LA to try to get a record deal <laughs> and tried to put all my political beliefs in these long songs. And, you know, they just weren't very commercial. And, uh, I plugged away at it for seven years. Edgar Winter recorded a song that I had written for a B-movie. I got to audition for Clive Davis, and he loved one of my songs, but they said, you know, I don't think there's a single we can break you with. So then eventually I went on and created the AIDS rides and things. And about four years ago, I decided I wanted to get um, get back to my music. And it's interesting that... You know, I think Joni Mitchell and uh, Bruce Springsteen, Bob Dylan, when they were 21 years old, for whatever reason, they had a lot to say, a lot of valuable stuff to say. And I just didn't. Um, I wasn't myself yet. I wasn't real. Everything about me was artifice at that age, I think in part because I was lying about my sexuality. So I, I, I just wasn't connected to anything real in myself. And now at the age of 62, 
you know, I've been beaten up a lot. I've lived a lot. I've lost a lot. I've lost a lot of people as we all have. And I don't know, there's a certain wisdom that comes with that, that has produced a lot of, uh, material, a lot of, a lot of songs for me, um, um, that maybe others who were prolific in their twenties are too exhausted to write now, you know, but, uh, I'm fresh at it. So I, I, uh, yeah, my, the first album about a year ago was American pictures. And that was, a uh, kind of a, an album of, uh, character, American characters who are down on their luck, but aren't giving up and this new album is called Winnebago Dreams, and it's kind of a collection of retirement songs, I would say. So tell us, uh, our listeners, uh, I want to make sure that they understand where they can find uh, two things. Where can they find more information about what we were talking about for the bulk of this uh, conversation, which is uh, Uncharitable and Everyday Philanthropist? And is there a website that uh, enables them to kind of follow your work and the release of the, the upcoming film Uncharitable? And where can they find your music? Yeah, you can go to danpilatamusic.com to find out about the music, and, and and you can go to danpilata.com to find out about the other stuff, or uncharitablemovie.com to find out about the movie. Thank you for your leadership on this issue. It's so incredibly important, you know, obviously to, to our work, but to, to so many others who don't really understand the, you know, the issues the way you explain them. They're just so clear and compelling and inspirational, so... Thank you for, for all that you've done on this. Well, thanks for both of your leadership, too, because honestly, I'm not just blowing smoke here. You know, it makes the work easier to do when you know there are at least some other people out there who believe passionately the same way and who are dreaming really, really big dreams the way you are. And I use you guys as an example a lot of the time of how nonprofits had to break, have to break out of this depressing prison of of. Uh, non-aspiration into the world of their dreams uh, well we can't wait to uh, see the movie uncharitable and uh, Debbie and I and we've got uh, some of these that you've generously enabled us to to uh, hand out and distribute um, uh, use uh, constantly this new book the everyday philanthropist a better way to make a better world so we've been talking with Dan Pallotta our friend of many years and a great leader in this uh, sector uh, and also now a, a songwriter and a musician returning to uh, his roots Thanks so much for listening to Add Passion and Stir on behalf of my sister Debbie and our team at Share Our Strength and Paul Woodall at District Productive, our producer. Um, you can go to addpassionandstir.com. You can find previous episodes. You can rate us and rank us and share episodes with your friend. Um, once again, my gratitude to Dan Pilata. Uh, you've been listening to Add Passion and Stir. I'm Billy Short. Thanks so much. Thanks so much.